This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. Today, we'll be discussing the evolving landscape of platforms and the shifting environment of everything B2B. Joining me today to discuss this are experts from here at Capgemini. Hello, yeah, this is Leonardo Serra from Capgemini Invent Germany in Berlin. I am a senior consultant for Invent for the past couple of years and currently a visiting scientist at the MIT. And... Thank you very much. I'm Leonardo Weiss. I'm also based in Germany and I'm leading our offer on intelligent products and services globally for Capgemini Invent. And from MIT. Yeah, hi, I'm Jeff Parker. I'm a professor of engineering at Dartmouth and I'm also a research scientist and affiliate at the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. We're all familiar with how B2C platforms have changed the ways of living over the past decades, but how have B2B platforms have become part of that conversation over the last several years, and what is their status now? Jeff, you want to start us off? We've been working on this concept of platforms, particularly platforms that use digital technologies that have both a kind of a local, national, and global reach. But a lot of what we learned from those were from the big tech platforms. So the obvious examples of sort of Uber and Airbnb, but more importantly, things like Facebook and Instagram and even the Google Docs, all of those systems, for the most part, are consumer facing. And so much of what we learned and much many of the examples um, that we used to illustrate the, the economics were drawn from a B2C world. The whole world is not B2C, however, and many of the people who were interested in harnessing these new business models uh, came out of the B2B world. And so they would ask, well, that doesn't quite fit. What does the concept of platform mean to us and how can we benefit along with our B2B customers from this phenomenon of what we'll call the platform economy? So that gives us a number of open questions with respect to B2B platforms. The first one, of course, is where are they different? Along what lines would we say a B2B platform is likely to differ from a B2C platform? A second one is, given the tremendous growth that we've seen in the B2C world, why hasn't this taken hold already in B2B? If the economics are so favorable, and if the business models are so powerful, why haven't we seen more activity? Which then leads to a natural follow-on question. Well, what does it take to succeed? And so that's why we're doing this research. And, and that's why we have this collaboration to really pull together both a practical business-facing team out of Capgemini and then out of MIT, a deep expertise in the economics and some of the theory around how platforms have grown over the years. There seems to be two ways towards developing B2B platforms, those who are evolving their existing business to an, a platform and those who are what are called platform natives. Leah Weiss, can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between these two concepts? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is at the end, when we talk to companies, it seems like everyone wants to be a platform. So Jeff highlighted the economics are interesting. There are a lot of positive things about that. 
But then if you see uh, how can companies go this way, and we basically see see two different types of companies. It's basically companies that are what we would call platform natives, which are companies that already have a platform. So they're trying to start a, a new business from scratch. So growing from the platform to an actual physical product. And what's interesting is their starting position is different. So first, they usually have very deep pockets, so they have large budgets. But what they often are lacking is the expertise in designing and building physical products especially when you're looking into B2B, where you might have a very specific requirements. And then there's a other part of companies, which are the companies that are going from the product to the platform, right? So think of all the large manufacturing companies, all the car OEMs, right? So you have a, a successful existing business around a physical product. And what you're trying to do now is build a platform around that. And what's interesting is the type of, of struggles and challenges that companies have are completely different. So you might be struggling with the, the usual way of working. So your legacy processes, legacy tools, legacy way of thinking, that's all centered around the physical product. But when you're looking to building a new digital business, the capabilities that you need are different, right? So the physical product is not at the center anymore. Got it. Seeing the interest from many companies for B2B platform business models and the two different ways of achieving those. Are there some successful examples of innovative B2B platforms out there currently? So it's interesting reflecting on what I said previously, right? So it feels like every B2B company wants to be a platform. At the end, there are very positive examples where companies are successful, but there are not many of them. So we looked at more than 150 B2B platforms. We conducted many interviews. And at the end, we see four types of B2B platforms and we'll mention some examples along these lines, right? So the four types of B2B platforms are what we call intelligent products and services. So it's basically building a platform around a physical product. There's what we call data aggregation and collaboration, which is all about getting the data and creating a business only around the data. There's the pure IoT platforms, which are basically the enablers or companies providing the technology to connect products to gather the data. And the fourth one is the marketplace. So let me start with the first one, uh, giving an example. So we did a lot of work for the large tractor manufacturers. So if you're looking at connecting our tractor to offer services around smart farming, there are a lot of questions that you need to address. So for instance, do you want to offer only services related to your machine, like predictive maintenance, condition monitoring, or do you also want to offer services maybe related to farming? So what's the right point in time to plant, to spray, to harvest? It has nothing to do with your actual tractor, but it creates a benefit for the farmer. So it's a strategic decision to be taken. Do you only want to focus on the core business, on, on the coverage of the value chain you have today, or do you also want to extend to other parts of the value chain? Also the question on what's the right portfolio to offer. So you need to find the right services that are not only solving uh, your farmer's uh, needs and pain points, but where is also willingness to pay. It's also a challenge. How do you set up yourselves internally as a company, right? So who has the, the profit and loss responsibility for doing new services? How do you collaborate across functions when it comes to sales, service, IT, R&D, potentially other functions? And ultimately also, what's the go-to-market? So do you market and sell the new solutions to your traditional channels, which today is a dealership? Tractors are sold in a similar way to cars. And even there, you need to understand the uh, do you have the right capabilities in your sales force? So what we see is people that are good in selling big, expensive products 
often struggle to sell a small and tangible service, but it's also around sales incentives, right? So we had a, a dealer telling us they need half a day to sell a harvester for half a million euros. They're not spending another hour to sell the small and tangible service. So uh, we can also look at our other examples. If you look at data aggregation and collaboration, maybe Leo, you want to give us some examples? So for data aggregation collaboration, this is um, a platform type that we stumbled across during this research that didn't see so much in the B2C world, actually. And it is about a company using a platform to aggregate and collect data from various sources, from various entities within the own organization, but also from uh, other parties, for example, its customers, its suppliers, and Based on this aggregated data that is stored centrally um, within a platform, it enables a company to foster collaboration, new ways of collaboration, um, collaboration across company borders and also data insights that were not possible before that. So a nice example for this is the Skywise platform by the airplane company Airbus, which started its platform to collect data from, of course, its airplanes that are in the field, but more importantly, from all the airlines that are using Airbus machines or having huge fleets of, of Airbus airplanes in the sky and on the ground. And by collecting this data from various airlines, Airbus had the chance to use this collective data to provide services like a predictive maintenance or like benchmarking different fleets against each other to its customers and therefore en enrich the product portfolio by giving new services, new insights, new ways of collaboration for its airlines, which of course helps the airlines getting useful information, not only of the own airplanes, but also of other airplanes in the field. And it helps Airbus to have a common database for improving its airplanes and further engineering and production. So another type, and it's really interesting by, by looking at over 150 platforms, we, we realized that in B2B, yeah, not all platforms are the same. They differ a lot in the value they provide and in the value proposition they, they offer to the clients. Another type that we see and that we all know from our consumer world are marketplaces. And marketplaces is um, a type of platform that we all use in our common lives um, on a day-to-day -day basis even. So you can imagine Uber Eats that you use for ordering food to your home on a busy working day. And it's, it connects you as a buyer or a demander for food. And it connects you to suppliers of foods, which are different restaurants. And of course, also in the B2B world, this type of platform is starting to come to, to the world. And an interesting example for this is uh, Kimondes. Kimondes is a European-focused marketplace for chemical products. And it's it started out of a chemical company in Germany, which is called Langsess, and they they said, okay, we, we want to, we want to find new ways of getting our products to our customers, not in this typical analog way where we call our customers, make them offers via email or sending letters around. But we want to use an online shop that is offering our products and not only our products, but also other chemical companies products. And so we, 
started this Kimonos platform with our own products. And quite quickly, we gained relevant market share to have other chemical products on the platform, of course, but also our direct competitors' products were sold via this platform. And for us, it's nice because we, we orchestrate this platform. We have a new sales channel and also we can get new revenues. And for our customers, of course, it's a nice benefit because they have a central point of entrance to the, to the whole world of chemicals. They don't have to uh, reach out to various suppliers, but they find, they find it all on this distinct platform, um, which is the power of marketplaces also then enabled by um, network effects that make them so special in their economics. And maybe Jeff, you can talk a minute about the network effects for those who are not familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. So the way we think about network effects is that that's the way that users create value for other users. And it's also how we differentiate platforms from standalone products and services. So what we do is we think about the value proposition to any particular user. And we say, well, there's standalone value. That is, what does it do, that product or service, in the absence of anyone else? And so, for example, if I use a hairdryer, I don't need other people to use a hairdryer to derive some benefit from it. But if it's a network platform, then the other users start to matter. And you can conceptualize those in a couple of ways. The first is you could have same side network effects. And so that'll be users like you, those of you who've used any social network, LinkedIn, for example. LinkedIn isn't particularly useful all by itself, but once other professionals like yourself start to join that network, then you get more benefit from it. Similarly, if you've ever used an application on, say, an Apple or an Android phone, you benefit from a robust uh, developer network, uh, an ecosystem of providers who can provide additional functionality on top of that system. And so that's a cross-side network effect. Those developers will want to affiliate with the system, iOS or Android, um, or really any computer operating system, to the extent that there are users there that they can sell products to. Similarly, the users will want to affiliate with that system to the extent or derive more benefit from the system to the extent that there are more ecosystem providers. So that's what we'll call a cross-side network effect. Um, those are some of the economics that will drive the ultimate outcomes in these markets. Um, the challenge, of course, for the participants is how to navigate the cold start problem. How do you start from zero? and then build up a user base and then layer in the functionalities that can then be used to create network effects to increase the value proposition. That's fascinating, Jeff. This network effect seems to be quite interesting, as do the different examples that we were giving of the different types of B2B platforms that are arriving on the market. Just out of curiosity, seeing these various types of B2B platforms arriving in the market, what else is the research telling us about how these platforms are evolving? I think we can use an example um, from the logistics industry because we've seen a tremendous amount of venture capital investment flow into that. And that'll give you an idea of the way, sort of the logic of the evolution of platforms within a particular industry. 
So if you take logistics, it's about 10% of the global economy, uh, which if, if you're not kind of familiar, is really is somewhat astounding. So the global economy is something on the order of about 90 trillion euros. Logistics is about 9 trillion euros. And you say, wow, that's really big. So any industry that's that big must be fantastic. They must have everything sorted out um, and be at the, at the top of the game technologically. And of course, you might have guessed the way I set that up, but that's not true at all. It's actually incredibly fragmented. There are needs for technology upgrades across the board. And so to give you an example, in the U.S., our trucking industry is quite fragmented and honestly quite antiquated. You literally have to call a dispatcher who then can locate a truck for you to find out where a shipment is. In other words, we're using an analog phone system and a human in the loop when, of course, we know that it makes much more sense to use some sort of an IoT tracking system and then collect all of that data centrally so that we can then know not only when to prep, for example, a warehouse or a factory for delivery, but also to handle things like the billing and and contracts and uh and closing out and ensure that that, uh, payments are made. So what do platforms do? Well, they find pockets in the economy that need to be restructured or where there are opportunities for change. So that means we could have a business model change. That might mean running some sort of a marketplace that connects different parts of a supply chain. It certainly means digital transformation. And just as a sidebar, often, as Leonardo said, firms will get all excited about platforms. And we'll come in and take a look. And I'm sure Leonardo and Leo have had this experience as well. Firms need to go through their digital transformation process first before they can build these kind of new business models and start to connect new types of participants to the network. Um, So there's often uh, this new infrastructure that's needed before platforms. Um, Then once that happens, you can start to add markets on top of systems and on top of supply chains. You can start to do much more digitalization of processes, um, and you can start to build new applications much more cheaply and much more rapidly because you're not having to do all of this end-to-end customization that a lot of current technologies and older technologies required. Um, so if we circle back to logistics, you know we've just seen a huge amount of investment. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one is there's a, a company that's operating in, I think, around 170 countries now. It's called Project 44. Um, it's a logistics tracking system. They've taken about 900 million euros of investment in several rounds. And they're now able to do incredibly detailed supply chain mapping that allows for a manufacturer to see not only to its tier one inputs, but tier two and tier three, that is further up the supply chain than most companies would have visibility to because that's getting into their suppliers' suppliers. Um, So that's really interesting. And of course, we're also seeing with ProStellar, um, they've put in Internet of Things uh, sensors in containers that can track Uh, those containers through multiple countries on rail systems, which turns out to be a really hard problem 
because you end up having to clear customs and then there are fees every time you cross borders. And that tends to be a paper-driven process. And so that adds delays and overhead expense. Once you can have the sensing and then add in some sort of a digital technology layer, you can start to take out those inefficiencies, reduce cost, and improve speed. So so one more example that I think um, ties back to what Leonardo talked about earlier, which was how do you add a digital layer on top of the physical? And so I think Semex is a really great example. So that's a uh, Mexico-based um, concrete and cement supplier. It's tens of billions of euros of turnover, operate in 30 or 40 countries. They rolled out about five years ago something called Semex Go. And that was essentially a digital layer that allowed their customers to order and track literally where is my concrete truck. And then that created the opportunity for all kinds of efficiency improvements because they could do better route planning. They could improve the chemistry or at least anticipate environmental conditions on a construction site, temperature, humidity, and then change the chemistry of particular concrete mix in anticipation of what was going to happen once that truck arrived on site. And so that's where you can start to add a digital layer on top of a physical system and generate quite a bit of value for all the participants. Leonardo Weiss, what are, we've talked a lot about what platforms are, what are platforms not? Yeah, Liz, I think that's a, it's a very interesting question because through the research, by talking to people, we also uh, found companies that feel like they are in a platform business model, but they might actually not be, right? So a very basic example, when think, people think of platforms, they think of Amazon, and then they say, hey, we're working on building a web shop to sell our products. And that's not a platform, right? At the end, what we mean with a platform is when you're bringing together supply and demand. And then uh, there's a lot of, of things that you need to consider to make it happen. So it's really important to understand if it's a web shop, maybe these things do not apply, but also the, the four types of platforms that we discussed, you need to understand where you're playing at to understand how do you position yourself, right? When it comes to network effects. So do you have the customers and want to attract partner suppliers or is it the other way around? Are you an open platform? If you're thinking on the cell phone market, on app stores, are you following more of the, the Apple approach or the Google approach? But also the overall question on the platform economics. So how are you monetizing? So are you monetizing through your suppliers? And for instance, uh, the users, the customers use it for free. Are you monetizing transactions, right? There are a lot of different ways of doing it and you need to understand these mechanics to be successful. Fascinating. So we, as platforms are gaining relevance in B2B, in order for a company to be successful in developing and operating with these B2B platforms, what does it really take? And what mistakes have you seen when considering the development of one of these B2B platforms? Leo just mentioned in his previous answer some of the first three important aspects, uh, naming the network effects, your view on openness, and of course, also your way of monetizing um, the platform and the economics in general. And this is part of our um, B2B platform framework that we have derived uh, and developed during this uh, first phase of the research. 
interviewing uh, a lot of stakeholders from various platform companies, various sectors, various regions, various sizes, from small startups to big corporates. And we came across patterns that they all struggled with or that they were all having challenges with and that they needed to sort out to become a successful platform in B2B. And besides this area of network effects, openness and economics, we see two more areas um, with, with six dimensions. The first one being your operating model. Um, the second one being uh, your go-to-market. So about the operating model, first thing you really need to pay attention to, especially if you are a existing company, a corporate is the organization governance aspect, um, meaning do you have the right setup when planning to build up a platform? And this um, has a lot of pitfalls that you can uh, come across with, mainly having, and this is coming back to our idea of are you a platform native or are you a traditional company building platform? Platforms require a totally different mindset when developing this product and many companies with their existing staff have have issues doing so. So we saw a pattern across many companies that to solve this issue, they founded a spin-off. They founded a new startup. They let it run quite independently, still of course supported by the mothership financially and also I mean other aspects. But many of them said it is crucial to have an independent entity that is working on this platform business. First of all, like I said, for this mindset reasons, but also for reasons on competition with existing competitors that might be coming to the platform and also competition with uh, existing business units that are uh, fearing their business going down with this new platform entity. So that was quite interesting. Another dimension, of course, is technology and data. What technology are you using? Are you building it from scratch or are you using um technology or IoT platform providers that are already on the market. I think that's really individual, but in general, quite important to know from the start how you want to tackle this. And on top of this, a sixth dimension that we saw is really important in B2B and really not a topic in B2C at all is the integration to your platform participants, be it the uh, demanders on the platform or the suppliers, it doesn't matter. Both of them are not consumers like us that have a smartphone and a green field. They download the app, they log in and, let, and, and they start using the app. It's different in B2B. All of your participants for the platform, they have existing systems, they have existing data structures, they have their existing processes, ways of working, mindsets. And it is a huge challenge, but a needed one for you as a platform operator to integrate your customers in the right way to provide consulting for them or to have third-party consultants doing this for you, to be really close with your um, customers in aligning what they need, what systems they have, how you can integrate to them in a seamless way. Because otherwise, um, you will have a nice platform that is functioning very well, but it's on its own and, and very hard to be integrated. 
for all platform types a challenge, but of course, especially for um, IoT platforms or platforms with physical products from various suppliers. And Leo, I think it makes sense also. I think the topic of operating model, especially in the B2B world, especially for companies that are product natives and want to build a platform around that a challenge, right? So maybe if I can reflect on a few industry examples. So we worked with a large uh, truck manufacturer also wanting to enter the platform business. And the decision he took was... Uh, to create a separate company, right? So if I reflect on the topics you mentioned from a perspective of organization and governance, they're free to do whatever they want in a positive way, right? So uh, from a mindset, uh, from a way of working, but then what's also in interesting is from a talent perspective. So if you're manufacturing tractors and you want to to be attractive for the, the greatest minds around uh, data scientists, uh, around data mining, right? How do you create this attractive uh, brand that's working in an agile way, that's developing new digital products? So creating a new company is really helpful. Also for technology and data, because uh, you don't need to rely on, on legacy tools that might be approved by, by a big corporate, but rather you can choose, you have the freedom to pick the tools that you like. Where they then struggle is the overall integration, both into their traditional customers, but also in their traditional business, right? So uh, taking a company out, of course, you have the freedom to be more flexible, but then you're also challenging more to stay relevant for the core business, because at the end, uh, you need uh, your core products, your core customers to create synergies and to drive your business. But on the other hand, if you're doing everything internally, then again, you always stay relevant for the business. You're always integrated. But then, of course, you might struggle more on the first two topics around organization and governance, right? So being agile in a way that you were maybe not before and also having the freedom to choose the right uh, technology, the right processes, it's not always easy in a large corporate environment. All right, so I've decided that I want to do a B2B platform and I've created my operating model. How do I take it to market? How do I go to market with it? Yeah, Liz, that's an, a really interesting and another crucial question, apart from the fact that I know what my platform should look like, especially for traditional companies. And I believe Leo has mentioned this before. It is a new business model, a new product, a digital product that is different to sell than uh, physical products. So that's the first thing. How do I sell this? Um, who is my sales force selling this? And what channels do I use? Um, platforms or digital services in general, they require different channels that my platform is um, sold through. Um, and one of those channels, for example, is, of course, the, the fact of network effects that a platform gains relevance by itself when it has users on the supplier side and users on the demander side. And to reach this stage is crucial because this lets a platform really take off. And what many companies are having uh, challenges with is how do I start? Do I start a platform? with a standalone value or do I start with one of the two user sites? And I think uh, in, in platform taxonomy, this is uh, having a, a wonderful name of the chicken and egg problem, Jeff. 
that you might to, <laughs> that you might want to explain to our audience because I think it's really it's one of the most crucial points when developing platforms. How do I start and how do I channel it to the to to my participants? As a business owner, what should be the core offer when it comes to a brand's B2B platform? Are we too limited in what we think is possible with B2B platforms? How do we get started here? Jeff, tell us. Yeah, so if we go back to what Leo and Leonardo talked about, I think you do see this kind of staging challenge. Call it the chicken and egg problem. And a lot of firms almost get ahead of themselves. I say we want to jump straight to platform. and. Often you have to step back and say, well, you need a user base and how are you going to get that? And that's where you build a compelling product or service, which almost seems anti-platform. And you say, well, isn't that how we've always done business? We've done this for hundreds of years. And you'd say, yes, um, yes, but the caveat is you have a long-term plan to be able to open up your architecture for your information systems and open up your business models to allow for supply and demand to meet in new ways that aren't only part of your controlled supply chain, but actually open up to additional types of suppliers. So I think of that as essentially being platform ready, but at the launch, you often want to start purely with what the platform can do in the absence of users so that you aggregate a user base. So you build up um, a user base that you can then open to. The other area that you can start to layer in new value is peer-to-peer connections. So what are the collaboration tools that would make the system more valuable, even if it's only consumed within an organization? Because much like you can think of a social network, you can think of the tools that you use to exchange information uh, more efficiently to create reporting systems to track things, um, to make your logistics and supply chain more efficient, even in the absence of external users. So there are things platforms can do in terms of their map for developing out different functionality that then corresponds to different types of value that can get created. Um, All of that has to be a, a big caveat, and it goes back to the types of platforms In the taxonomy that Leo mentioned earlier, if you're running a marketplace, marketplaces require supply and demand. And so in a marketplace, you very well may have to vertically integrate into the supply side in order to get a set of customers and then open up. Or you may try to mobilize an external set of suppliers. And we saw that in the Chimandis case. And then they opened that system up. And we're able to get a demand side of customers. And I think after they had about 1,500 suppliers, and I think the numbers are around 7,000 or so buyers, they started to see an uptick in the network effects where people started to come to the system because it had a superior offering um, and variety, and you had sort of transparency in prices. So I think those give a couple of of kind of thoughts around how do you how do you stage you know and for the most part I think the dominant mode that we saw was platforms starting out as products and services but having an architecture that would support being a, a more open system over time 
And maybe also adding to that, uh, Liz, and I really liked how you framed the question in the sense, uh, are we too limited in our thinking what is possible? I often think it's actually the other way around. So in a sense, uh, as a B2B person, people are thinking of platforms like Amazon, Uber, and Airbnb. So they're looking for, for the one platform that will dominate the market and enable everything. But my recommendation is actually don't try to boil the ocean. So uh, I'm not even sure we'll see these types of big dominating platforms in B2B in the same way as we see it in B2C. So I don't think there will be a one platform that dominates the market. Actually, what we often see is companies being successful in certain markets or in certain niches where you might have specific dynamics, you have a specific ecosystem, you have a specific set of requirements, and you can build your platform inside that niche and you can be successful there. And I think that's also interesting difference to B2C, right? So again, don't boil the ocean. Yes, Leo, that's uh, it's completely right. I think that's also back in our research, we saw this pattern. And not only for the niche requirements that are one limit limiting factor, but also on the region, we see that a platform that might be successful in Europe or even just in one country has a tough time going into another continent or another market like the US or China. And the same with the sectors. They, the sectors also all have their real niche or own requirements. So even if you are a successful platform for a problem in healthcare, it will be really tough to go to another sector like agriculture. So this leaves a lot of open space for various platforms in the B2B market. As we're wrapping up here, gentlemen, what are some of your final thoughts for creating B2B marketplaces for the business? Leonardo Weiss. I think one point that's also really interesting to highlight, and Jeff mentioned it at the beginning, is the problem of the cold start. And I think what's what's really interesting here and what really helps companies in their thinking is looking at what makes you unique. So how do you start a platform? Do you have a unique access to the market and you're the one that is in touch with the clients and no one else has that? And that's your way to a platform, basically by getting the suppliers and partners on board. Or maybe it's the other way around. So you're the one that brings suppliers and partners together. And that's why customers will want to use your platform. Or maybe do you have the data that no one else has? So you're the only one who are capable of offering a platform or are you the only one that has the technology? Or maybe you're the only one that is covering this key part of the value chain where all the customers and suppliers uh, rejoice? Or are you the one that dominates the complete value chain and you have the power to be a platform? I think these are some of the key questions to answer and also to help finding the right way to getting started into becoming a platform. If I can dovetail on what Leonardo said, I think that B2B platforms are are much more likely to be successful in niches where in some of the B2C market outcomes, we've seen kind of winner take all or winner take most. But many of the factors that are making it difficult for B2B to get traction, and those are around for example, high integration costs or customer switching costs uh, or limited numbers of developers who are able to create value on top of your platform. Those things make it difficult to get traction, but they're also going to be the things that protect those platforms once they do get traction and start to see success from being overtaken by some of the technology giants. 
So I think we would predict that we'll have a much more um, a varied landscape and many more industry-specific, technology-specific B2B platforms than you do in the B2C space. So what about the research? What's the outlook on the research and what can we expect to see next, Jeff? Yeah, this is a really exciting time because I'd say that we're kind of at the midpoint um, or a little past. So we we undertook this research um, with the basic question that we asked at the beginning of the podcast and honestly at the beginning of the research project, which is, you know, what's different in B2B and B2C? Why is B2B taking so long to get traction? So we did, first of all, some review of examples and Leo mentioned over 150, and that allowed us to do some, in effect, clustering so that we could figure out archetypes and then understand uh, sort of how those differed from one another. Then we augmented that with a series of interviews. So we did about 30 interviews with stakeholders and experts across industry, and that allowed us to also test our ideas and, and really probe as to what we were missing. And so now what we're about to do is launch a global survey where we're able to get hundreds of responses um, from across different industries and across different countries. And that'll allow us to then test some of our hypotheses against a much larger uh, set of respondents. And so what's coming next is we'll be gathering that information and then analyzing it and very much look looking forward to uh, to coming back with the results from that analysis. Yes, that's that's going to be really interesting, Liz. We are kind of finished with creation of the survey. It will be launched either shortly to Christmas or after. Let's see what we decide on. This multiple answers uh, will give us a good good starting point of data to really establish options for various types of platforms. So what is what is the learnings we see from other companies doing platforms? For example, what does a marketplace need? What type of organization model does it need? What kind of monetization model is best suited for it? And on the other side, what does another platform type like intelligent products and services platforms need? Where do they differ? What do we see uh, coming from the data that will help us a lot and also giving more and more deep, more deeper um, recommendation um, on how to successfully bring a platform and B2B to the market. So really looking forward to what we find out with this additional survey data uh, early next year. From that conversation, we've learned about how your business can be on the cutting edge of B2B platforms. For those of you interested, we have released the first results of this pioneering research project to better understand the complexities of business-to-business platforms and ecosystems. B2B platforms paving the way to success available in the show notes. This includes the B2B platform framework with the four platform types and the success dimensions called out today. A special thank you to Leo Serra, Leo Weiss, and Jeff Parker for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon. Thank you.